So many people over the past few days have said the same thing. When they have described the effect of Elizabeth on the lives of the nation. Queen Elizabeth II, she was a constant, they have said. How many times have you heard that word used? Again and again and again, I would imagine. I certainly have. She was a constant in the lives of many of us. That reassuring continuousness in the rapidly changing world that we have around us. She was, no matter where we looked, no matter where we were, she was always there. Monarchs, and we're talking about the notable ones here, they're sometimes given the honor of having an age named after them. For example, Victoria, the Victorian age, and Edward VII, the same, the Georges. And those ages, they came to define not only a period of time, but a whole culture and a mindset that is tied in with them and typified by them, even a whole style of architecture that you would have identified with those eras. But we have just witnessed the reign of a sovereign who defies being pigeonholed into a category or slotted into a particular age, simply because the reign of Queen Elizabeth II has spanned so much whole eras have come and gone on her watch. She steered the nation through the jet age, on through into the space age, beyond that well into the digital age, when eventually her hand was taken from that crown. It's rather extraordinary to think that more than half the nations that we know on the earth today did not exist when she came to the throne. Her coronation would predate their constitutions, their national anthems, their flags, and their currencies as well. Little wonder then she's referred to as the rock on which modern Britain has been built. And that is meant because she has continued for so long that so many people have wakened up on successive mornings since her death, and they have struggled to imagine our country without its queen. Boris Johnson spoke for so many when he said, she seems so timeless and so wonderful that I'm afraid we had come to believe like children that she would just go on and on. And because of this continuity, this feeling of invincibility. Even though she was 96 years of age, the news of her death announced at 6.32 p.m. on Thursday in a short statement coming out of Buckingham Palace simply saying, the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. That seemed so unreal. Sir Levine wrote on Friday, it just seems unimaginable. That wisest and most steadfast of women, our guiding light in the darkness of nights, has gone. What the United Kingdom has experienced in all of the territories in recent days was also true of the nation of Israel for back in the 8th century BC. A king came to the throne in Jerusalem. 
He began to reign at 16 years of age. He reigned in Jerusalem for over 50 years, or 20 years short of our own king's record. His name was Uzziah. What Uzziah accomplished in his reign was to bring the last spiritual reform and revival to the people of the land. When he died, it signaled a turning point. It was a watershed in Jewish history. And from that day on, the spiritual life and the vitality and vibrancy of that Jewish nation went into a serious decline, and it never recovered from that decline. I think it's significant that in the providence of God, four years after Uzziah died, the city of Rome was founded, and a cultural change took place in the world that would shape the whole future destiny of history. But in the middle of the struggle of this particular nation, a man was called of God to the special vocation of a prophet for the people. A man who was not only a righteous and a religious person, but he became a statesman in his own right because he spoke to several kings over the course of his long ministry. He was the prophet who said that someday in the future a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child, and the name of that child will be Emmanuel. He was the prophet who also said that the future servant of the Lord, he would come and he would bear the sins of many, for he would bear their iniquities. His name, of course, was Isaiah. And this sixth chapter of the book that bears his name that we've turned to this morning and read together, this chapter outlines the record of Isaiah's call to the role of prophet. So in verse 1 of Isaiah 6 we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Further details are given as we read on. But what exactly? Here's a question we need to ask right at the beginning. What exactly did Isaiah see? Was this man, one who had experienced here, as he described, an ecstatic vision that took place when he was standing in the temple in Jerusalem, or did he actually catch a glimpse into the inner sanctum of heaven itself? R.C. Sproul said, I prefer the latter interpretation. I'm persuaded, he said as well, for technical reasons, I won't get into here, that what happened was that God opened the curtain. He removed the veil from heaven itself. Pretty much what he did later, in the days of the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, centuries down the line, he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he gets a vision of the interior of heaven. And Isaiah the prophet here in Isaiah 6, what does he see but the Lord enthroned in heaven itself? And this wonderful vision assured him, though the king was dead, his God was very much alive still reigning in strength, still operating in splendor from his unshakable throne. 
And that's what our weary hearts need to see and hear today. Yes, London Bridge is dying. Code within the circles for the Queen has died. But God is still on the throne. As one of the stanzas in the Queen's favorite hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, that we've just sung there, one of the stanzas puts it like this. Frail as summer's flower, we flourish. Blows the wind, and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. Praise Him, praise Him, praise the High Eternal One. And that was the one that neither as king had died, Isaiah focused his physical and spiritual eyes upon. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What does he see here? First of all, he sees God in his sovereignty. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, his train filling that temple. Notice in Isaiah 6 and 1, the way the word Lord in our English Bible is rendered, it's capital L, and then small letters for O-R-D. But if you drop down a couple of verses to verse 3 of the same chapter and you take up the song of the seraphim, it says there that one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word Lord appears again there. But it's spelled differently. The letters are all capitals. L-O-R-D. It's not a typographical error. Rather, the translators are trying to flag up something that's a bit unusual. That even though we have the same English word, Lord, here in the text, the fact that they're printed differently indicates there are two distinctively different Hebrew words behind this passage. Anytime you see the word Lord in capitals all the way through, you can be fairly confident that the Hebrew term being translated is the name Jehovah. You can go way back to the time when he appeared to Moses in that burning bush out in the Midianite wilderness, and he said, I am that I am. Exodus 3 and verse 14. Now that's the sacred name of Jehovah. That's the name of God. But earlier, in verse 1, when we see the word Lord, we have a different word in Hebrew there. It's Adonai. That's among all the titles used of God in the Old Testament, and there are many. This is probably the most exalted title the Old Testament uses for God, Adonai. This is the supreme title that is given to him. For example, if you turn to Psalm 110, the verse 1, you would read, The Lord, capitalized, said unto my Lord, Adonai, Jehovah to Adonai, Godhead, communicating one through the other, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
This Lord Adonai is on the throne, as Psalm 110 makes very plain, as Isaiah 6 and 1 also confirms. Do you know what is the most quoted, the most alluded to Old Testament passage when you come into the New Testament? It's Psalm 110, quoted more than any other in the New Testament. Paul tells us, Our Lord Jesus is given a name that is above every other name. And this title, Adonai, the name that originally belongs to God, belongs to God alone, belongs properly to Christ, who is God. We read of that in Philippians 2, the verse 9 to 11. Now, the meaning of the term Adonai simply is this, the sovereign one. So we see what's happened here in Isaiah 6 and 1, the king, Uzziah, is dead. There's uncertainty among the people. There's mourning throughout the land. And Isaiah comes in the name of his people here, and he looks and he sees into those interior parts of the heaven, and he sees not Uzziah there, not Hezekiah there, not David there. He sees Adonai, the supreme sovereign, enthroned in heaven. The king has died. God is still on the throne. And I'm convinced that what he's seeing here, described by him in Isaiah 6, is actually a pre-incarnate glimpse. A view of Christ before he was born in Bethlehem became there that incarnate God. He's getting a pre-incarnate glimpse of the enthronement of Christ himself in all of his majesty. And his heart must be bulging with the thought of an old hymn writer who said, To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And if you and I are going to have consolation today, comfort for our heart of our Christian life, if we're belonging to Christ, if it's going to go forward, then all vital Christian experience must begin and be carried forward with a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he sees him in his authority here. The authority of the king. Every king is anointed. We'll have that coming up with King Charles III very soon. We read of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1 and 9, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, anointed by the Holy Spirit. David Dixon lived from 1583 through to 1662. He was a professor of theology at both Glasgow and then Edinburgh universities. You find his name on the spine of a lot of books in second-hand bookstores, religious bookstores. He wrote many commentaries on the Bible. He opposed the unbiblical worship and church government that was foisted on the Church of Scotland by Charles II, and that opposition cost him his position. But he wrote, Christ is anointed above his people. The Spirit is not given to them, to Him, by measure, but to dwell bodily and substantially so that His fullness, we can receive grace upon grace from that. Christ the anointed 
the authoritative king. We need to ask ourselves the question, is he the king of our life today? Have we crowned him Lord of all? Do we acknowledge him and his authority? Psalm 45 and 6, for example, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, or what Jesus himself said in Matthew 28 and 18, all power is given unto me. The authority of the Lord. Not only that, the almightiness of the Lord is seen here, because in Isaiah 6, in the verse 3 and again the verse 5, you'll find him described as the Lord of hosts. Say Baoth rendered armies in Numbers 1 and verse 3. Essentially, it is the Lord's military name. He's the God of armies, expressive of his power here. I think you remember Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he pulls in this description of God here. And when everything was amassed around him, and all was closing in upon him, and he felt so oppressed by the forces of the devil all around, and he's wondering, how do we get the Word out? Because the Word was his guiding light. The Word was the passion of his heart. At the end of ministry, he said, it wasn't me who did it. It was the Word that did it all. But how do I get it out with all of this opposition? By depending on his own strength, by looking to some kind of military prowess. No, he didn't. By combining the measures of great emperors and also great thinkers. No. He identifies the source of his victory in the words of that hymn when he says, Did we, in our own strength, confide? Well, our striving then would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that might be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, say both is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And so if Luther and the Reformation is going to gather peace and spread through the countries of Europe as it did, it can only be done not by the power of a man, but by one who is the Lord of hosts. And so that figure was Luther's confidence. Notice the interesting expression as well in Isaiah 6 and 1. We're told here in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. In the ancient days, the clothing of monarchs was a measure of their status. If a king wore ermine, that was incredible. If he wore sebum, well, that was even better. Mink was kind of second or third grade level. And if any king came in with canvas robes, they would escort him to the back of the summit meetings of the kings. For those in this congregation who weren't alive at the time, you can check out YouTube, whatever, get a video of it, of the first international television broadcast to take place that featured the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. 
And the commentators, you'll find they're going on and on about the pomp and the grandeur and the circumstance and they're mulling over only the British can bring this to a celebration. And look at, they're saying, the magnificence of her gown there. And as she came to approach the throne in Westminster, they had several pages who would come in there and lift the tree in of her gown as she's making the entrance into the abbey because that gown was spreading out four feet behind her as she processed. But do you hear what Isaiah is saying here? When he saw this vision of the heavenly king, he saw a king whose splendorous garments billowed out over the sides of the throne, furled back along the sides of the temple, around the back entranceway, and spilled out and completely filled the building. That's what he saw of the almighty King of Kings. His train filled the temple. It's a visual experience he's getting of majesty and it's communicated through the magnificence of these garments. He is the almighty Lord. Not only that, his absoluteness is in view here as well. In Isaiah 6 and 5, What are we reading there as well as the contrast that we have in the verse 1, of course? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not one of us, not me, not all the people, we're not like Him. There's a total contrast here. The Lord, he is the absolute ruler. He's the king. As Revelation 17, 14 styles him, Revelation 19 and 16 as well, he is the king of kings. And it's very interesting when we note here in Isaiah 6 that two kings are mentioned and a line of demarcation is drawn between them. In verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, sitting upon a throne, verse 5, the king, the Lord of hosts, the earthly king, had ruled into his grave after all of those years, was now being swallowed up by the dust of death. But not so the king of heaven, he kept on reigning. And no wonder, for he is king exclusively, king absolutely. King eternally. That's the vision that Isaiah saw. Not of one who depended on the people for his authority, but one who was absolutely God. What does he see? He sees, first of all, God in his sovereignty. He say, secondly, he sees God in his sanctity. God in his sanctity in his purity. That chorus raised by the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holiness is that characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of his being. It's only when we appreciate the holiness of God that it's possible For us to see ourselves as we really are. Why does society not bow before the God of heaven? Why is it not running to him, crying out for his salvation? Because they have never seen 
the holiness of God. They've never been overawed by such an incredible sight. The very core of his being. Their eyes have not seen, and so they feel they're, they're fine as they are. Don't feel bad about themselves because they haven't seen God in his holiness. And when we see him, we'll cry as Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am undone. The view that we have of God here in Isaiah 6, in the verse 2 and 3 underline his majesty and holiness. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You'll not read of these seraphims anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place. Some have tried to just bunch them in with a the cherubim. But since the Bible and God has made a distinction, then we need to distinguish them. But really we know very little about the seraphim apart from their part of the heavenly host. They have been especially created by God to serve him day and night in his immediate presence. And if we read the description here that Isaiah gives, it almost reads bizarrely. We're told they had six wings, three pairs of wings. Now when God makes creatures, no matter who they are, we see the evidence all over the world. He does it with a certain creative economy. Doesn't waste material. He has an amazing, extraordinary ability to create whatever he makes in such a way that it's adaptable and suitable for its environment. He makes fish with gills and with fins because their natural habitat is in the water. He makes birds with wings and with feathers because their environment, it's in the air and so when he comes and he creates angelic beings whose task and function in creation is to minister to him in his immediate presence, that's what they're built for. He constructs them in such a way as to make them fit for their environment. That's why we are told they were given two extra sets of wings. But why? Why do we read here with twain? He covered his face. Well, they are created to minister daily in the immediate unveiled presence of Almighty God, whose glory is so refulgent, so piercing, that even the angels have to shield themselves from looking directly at him. That's why these seraphim have wings to cover their face. It's like Moses at the mount in Exodus chapter 33. And we need to get some grasp of how glorious and holy our God is. Lord, confront us with your holiness. And then we read of these other two extra wings with twain he covered his feet. The Bible doesn't tell us why it was necessary for the seraphim to cover their feet. We can only guess. Don't like guessing, but that's all we can do in this instance. And Well, the feet, for the angels as it was for men, is the symbol in the Bible of creatureliness. We're told we're off the earth. We're earthy. We have feet of clay. 
when Moses met God in that Midianite desert, what was the first thing God said to him? Well, in Exodus 3 and 5, we read it, Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground whereon thy stand is its holy ground. He was to bear his feet there, the sign of his creatureliness, the sign of his submission before the Holy One. And so even in heaven the angels, the seraphim, cover the sign of their creatureliness. But no matter how fascinated we might be with our anatomy, that's minor. The vital thing is not their structure, but what they said, their speech. Holy, 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 Isaiah 6 and 3, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you're probably thinking of that classical church hymn, holy, holy, holy. Magnificent hymn celebrates the majesty of God, and it has angels there represented, and everyone casting down their golden crowns before the glassy sea at the sovereign ruler of everything, acknowledging him in submission and in gratitude. But no matter what choir you'll hear sing that hymn here on earth, it wouldn't be a patch on hearing it being sung by a choir of angels. That's what Isaiah saw. The heavenly host above the throne of God singing to each other in these responses, the single word repeated over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In English, if we want to emphasize something, we'll probably underline it, maybe put it in italics. We might uh, put it in bold-faced type if we're bringing it up on computer or get a highlighter, draw attention to it, some method we will use. The Jews did all of that. Underline, bold-faced, italicize, but they had another technique to call attention to something of real great importance, and that was verbal repetition. Paul used it. Over in Galatians 1, the verse 8 to 9. You can check up that reference in your own time. Our Lord used it. If he's trying to stress something, this is so important. You can't afford to miss it. Verily, verily, he would have said, the art of repetition, putting emphasis on it. Did you know that the only attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture is this one, His holiness. There's only one characteristic of God that's communicated in this superlative degree from the mouth of angels where the Bible doesn't say simply, God is holy, or He is holy, holy, but He is holy, holy, holy. You'll never read in the Bible where the Bible is telling you God is mercy, 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 or He is love, 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 or He is justice, 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 or He is wrath, wrath, wrath. But you do read here, He is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes His very essence. And it's shown to Isaiah here at the sign of the seraphim, and we read... In Isaiah 6 and 4, notice what happens. 
and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Did you, hear, did you read that right? The posts of the door moved at the voice. What? Inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. What about us? How can we, made in His image, be indifferent, be apathetic to His majesty, His holiness, His purity, His sanctity? What a holy God we serve. But then, and as we move on quickly, he saw God in his sovereignty and his sanctity in his song. Notice that he sees him in song. We have referred to it with the seraphim's song in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6. The whole scene is just pulsing with God's Priests overflowing because of his glory and his sovereignty and his holiness. In verse 1, he's high and lifted up. Verse 2, these ministering servants, the seraphim, they're present with him. The chorus that they're singing is identified in verse 3, and it's all focused, this song, on him. A great painter had just finished a scene in a room. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was the central figure of that painting. And he brought some of his friends around just to see it and give their impressions of it. And they were all taken in and they were examining the tremendously detailed work in the painting, examining the lace tablecloth in the picture, other things as well. And they talked about it and talked about it. How did you do it? How did you capture such intricate detail? And he was totally annoyed by all of the conversation. And he took his brush and he dipped it into his paints and with a bold stroke. He drew right over that elaborate lace work and he said, fools, look at the master's face. There will be no such confusion when our Lord returns in power and glory from on high. Isaiah, he terms it here in the third verse of this sixth chapter of his prophecy, he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they. The saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array. The beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye in that crowning day that's coming by and by. And Isaiah gets a little preview of that thousands of years before it happens. You saw God in a sovereignty, in a sanctity, in a song, finally in his stability. And that's the contrast that we have today. Concerning our queen, it has been said, and said rightly, stability, continuity, tradition, in the finest sense of the word, this is a woman whose first prime minister was born, was that one of 15? In 1874. Not even, the writer says, my parents' generation has known a world without her. Again, she has been our one true north, the only fixed point in an ever-shifting world, as archaic as the monarchy is. In a funny way, it feels like we've never needed it more 
This institution that transcends the fortunes of passing prime ministers, led by a woman who for seven glorious decades has defied time and tide. She did that for those 70 years on the throne, but no longer. She too is now gone. So we have the contrast in Isaiah 6 and 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. I also saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. As we've said, London Bridge is down, but God is still on the throne. I think of what we read in Psalm 45 and verse 1, unto the, throne, unto the Son, he saith, that's the Father, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we have it in Hebrews 1 and the verse 8. Another testimony we have about him is in Psalm 102, the verse 10 to 12. We're told heaven and earth will not continue itself. The heavens shall perish like old, be changed. And yet when all of that change is happening, Jesus Christ remains. Thou remainest, the text says, thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. He is eternal, he is constant, he is immutable. He cannot change his purpose of love for his people, whatever changes happen to them and around them. What do we need when we're faced with the frailty and the foulness of our own flesh? What do we need when a very cherished figurehead is taken from us in death. What do we need to be able to do when trials like this shake us? Captain Edith Howard wrote a poem face to face. I had built my castles and reared them high till the towers had pierced the blue of the sky. I had sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met the master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes full of pity were fixed on me and I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away, faded and vanished and in their place. Naught else did I see but the master's face and I cried aloud, Oh, make me meet to follow the steps of thy wounded feet. My thought is now for the souls of men. I have lost my life to find it again ever since that day in a quiet place that I met the Master face to face. And of this generation around us that is broken in Belfast and right across our country, right across this United Kingdom, if it's ever going to recover, if there's ever going to be a revival of real religion and regeneration of masses, it'll only ever begin when we get a view again of our Savior's face. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his tree and filled the temple. May God privilege us with a sight like that.